one day they were coming over the top of a climb and they hear Bradley whistle out, here we go. And Lance turns to Levi and says, how the hell are these guys still with us? And Levi turns to Lance and says, Dr. Lim. Welcome to Beyond Limits. My name is Dr. Alan Lim, and this show is about human performance and human possibility. Hi, I'm Dr. Alan Lim, and I'm here with my cousin Brian Coe of Vellaworthy, and this is episode one of Beyond Limits. Alan Lim is the founder of Scratch Labs and has also coached some of the best cyclists in the world. Alan, let's talk about sort of how you got to this point. Oh, man, that's a big question, right? Like, what's my story? What's my narrative? Blah, 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 blah. Um, how about I start with this? There are three stories out there. The first story is a story that you want everyone to know about you, right? And I think that's just marketing BS. The second story is a story that everyone thinks they know about you. And you either have to spend all of your time living up to it because it's a lie, or you spend all of your time fighting it because it's a lie. And then there's this third story. And the third story is the story that you can barely tell yourself, let alone anyone else. And, you know, I mean, we've had conversations about this, especially in the last, you know, year or so that um, it's taken me a long time to tell myself my own story. Um, It's been hard. I've been working in pro cycling now for, you know, holy moly, for 20 years or so, more than 20 years. Um, Most of it really, really good. A lot of it really dark. Um, Always way more complicated than I think it's supposed to be. Um, but it's been a crazy ride. And, and I think it really starts with the, with our family, right? In, mm-hmm. in, in California, uh, the Boy Scouts of America, getting the cycling merit badge, uh, learning how to ride bikes. I mean, we were just up in Ansel Hoffman Park where um, we learn how to ride bikes for the first time, or at least your dad tried to teach us how to ride bikes first time. I think I was a total failure at that moment. But later I figured out how to do it by coasting down the driveway of my friend Chung Chung's house. Yeah, that was actually his real name, Chung Chung, on his sister's bicycle, which was this like pink, you know, Disney bike. And ever since that moment where I figured out how to stay upright on two wheels, all I've ever wanted to do is build a life around cycling. But we're immigrants to this country, right? Um, half of your parts are from the Philippines, half from China. All of my parts are from China, but I was actually made in the Philippines. And we ended up in the U.S. because our parents were chasing the proverbial American dream. And I think that they really believed in it. Part of that belief means that you're going to have kids who go to college, who get an education, who become something bigger than, you know, I don't know, misanthropes riding bicycles all over the place. And I think as kids, that's kind of who we were, though, right? We were just these kids riding to the comic book store on our dirt bikes, you know, roaming around Los Angeles or Sacramento or wherever we were without our parents ever actually knowing where the hell we were. It represented freedom and it represented independence. And I think in those days when you're that young of a human being and you get both of those things through a bicycle... That pays dividends so much later in life. And I think it did. And I think that's part of the reason that we're still in it. We're still very much in it today where most of our friends we grew up riding with are 
you know, they have other jobs, they don't write anymore, maybe they follow it on TV. But for some reason, it just never left us. Yeah, I think that as much as it was a sport and a physical activity, it was also a tool for transportation. The bicycle was just integral to everything we did in life. It was integral to our sense of freedom and independence. Um, you know, I think it was when we went up to the Coors Classic in 1985, met Michael Lazner, um, met all of these individuals who basically were, were willing and able to, to open the sport up to us that I realized, wow, this could actually be something that, that I can do for the rest of my life. Of course, the, the Coors Classic spawned the movie American Flyers, right? And in the movie American Flyers, if you haven't seen it, Kevin Costner plays this sports physician who is about to embark on this race with his brother called the Hell of the West. And it was at that moment as well that I realized, whoa, there's this thing called sports science or sports medicine, and that maybe this is a way that I could participate, right? Um, I was an okay bike racer as a junior, but I wasn't, um, I wasn't the best. And I still, I think, had the pressure to go to college and to do something um, more academic. And the thing is, you were fast. You raced as a young, young junior against household cycling names today like Jonathan Vodders, George Hincapie, also as juniors. Talk about that experience. I mean, you obviously, they, they were just kids at the time, like you. Um, so not only were you well adept at riding a bike, you were re getting really good at racing a bike. Yeah, I was super lucky. Um, I grew up in a community called uh, Montrose or Glendale, Montrose, Glendale, La Crescenta, um, a part of Southern California that is deeply rooted in cycling. I was part of a team called the Montrose Cycling Club that was sponsored by Suntour KHS. Um, my teammates included my brother, my cousin John, uh, Tony Cruz, Freddie Rodriguez, and we just tore it up. Um, I remember uh, at Junior Nationals, I made the breakaway with uh, George Hincapie, but before the start of that race, I remember looking over at him. We were like 16 years old and he had like a five o'clock shadow. And I was like, oh shit, we are totally screwed. Um, I ended up getting fifth in that race. But in that race were athletes like Jonathan Botters, Freddie Rodriguez, myself, George. Um, and, you know, at that race, I met other athletes who I became lifelong friends with, like Gigi Demet, right? Uh, Gigi Berry. Um, it was an incredible time of my life in terms of friendships, relationships. And what I don't think a lot of people know about my arc is that it was really those childhood friendships that laid the foundation for the career I have today. You went to school at UC Davis for your undergrad. And that's, I think, when you got your first taste of not only collegiate cycling, as that's very much an integral part of cycling, but also the coaching aspect as well. I think your very first coaching gig was when you were still an undergrad with the UC Davis women's team. And that sort of laid the tracks in front of you to maybe go not just from racing anymore, but to the other side of basically where you are now because you're still obviously coaching today. Yeah, well, the real transition for me in terms of melding the academic or the sports science with the coaching was really through my coach, Dr. Wigbert Sai. Wig was a hugely influential coach in the Sacramento area. And 
when I went to school at UC Davis, he began coaching me. Wig is super interesting and kind of an anomaly in cycling because, like myself, he's also Chinese from the Philippines. He speaks the same dialect of Chinese as my parents do, as I can understand. And I think that having Wig coach me for my parents made it okay because culturally he was the same. He had represented the Philippines in the Olympic Games. He had a PhD in exercise physiology. He was also an MD. Um, and what he always brought to the table was the science. He always forced us to think. He always made us write our own training programs and then had us kind of justify why we wanted to do what we wanted to do. I mean, he would look at our programs and, and, and give us you know a huge amount of insight, but he forced us to think about how it worked. And it was his mentorship that made me realize, wow, if I can do this for myself, I might be able to do this for others. So my senior year at UC Davis, I started coaching the women's cycling team, and we ended up winning the collegiate national title that year. Um, that was probably one of the most exciting and kind of triumphant moments of my cycling career. And and at the height of that uh, coaching, you had gone from there to CU Boulder and then also got your first real stint at USA Cycling. Um, right. You were there at, I think, the age of 22 or 21, and you were coaching athletes who were uh, the juniors on the U S national team at the time who were just a few years younger than you. Um, what was that experience like and why did you end up leaving it? Yeah. So I went to CU Boulder after my undergrad at UC Davis. I did my master's in exercise science at CU Boulder and I got hired by Roy Nickman to be the resident coach at the U S Olympic training center for the U S cycling team. That was 1997 and I just turned 23. So I was probably the youngest national team coach that they had ever hired. Um, you know, I'd like to say that we ruined an entire generation of cyclists on my watch. Um, I was just a kid and I was coaching other kids. And I remember going into the dorms the first day to greet these athletes. And we were still under this kind of Soviet era idea that what you had to do was find really young talent, bring them to a training center and beat the crap out of them. And that the ones who survived were the ones that were going to go on to great glory. It was basically to throw the eggs against the wall and see which ones cracked. Anyways, I go through the storms and I, I'm, I'm meeting the athletes for the first time. And they're putting up their decorations, you know, as you do when you move into the dorms. And I noticed that everyone's got this article from their local newspaper, right? Shelly Orham gets invited to the U.S. Olympic Training Center, right? Um, I mean, it was a, it was a incredible crew of uh, Marissa Vandeveld, Ryan Kelly, Nicole Reinhardt. Um, there were some incredible athletes, Lewis Elliott, Derek Wilkerson. And all of them had this article, right, touting, you know, that they were the next big Olympic hope. A couple of weeks later, I went back to visit these same athletes in their dorms. And as I was going through, I noticed that something was a little different. And what was a little different was each of these athletes had taken down those local newspaper articles because I think they realized that they were just another another fish in this kind of bigger pond. 
um, it was actually really, really sad for me, right? Because at that moment, I realized that what had made them great were their communities, were their families, was the support that they had. And we were basically stripping out their biggest advantage, right? And putting them in a world where now they had to be highly competitive with one another, where they were, for the most part, isolated and lonely. And for me, it just it just was a bad deal. And I, I didn't, I couldn't really stomach it. Um, it made me sad. At the same time, I wanted to employ a lot more sports science. I uh, was fascinated by the idea that we could put these power meters on bicycles and actually quantify the demands of pro cycling and, you know, use that information to design better training programs. Uh, Greg Lamont had already been using a power meter called the SRM, the Schober Resistance Meter, but there was nothing commercially available in the United States. And to get an SRM, you had to fly to Europe, spend, you know, five, six thousand dollars and bring it back to the country. So there was there weren't a lot of Americans who who understood this. So I ended up leaving uh, USA Cycling um, and wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. But at Interbike in 1997, I met three uh, guys who basically changed the trajectory of my life. They were Chris Sigmont, Gerhard Powelka, and Jesse Ambrosina, and they had this rear hub power meter that they called the Power Tap under a company named Etune. And we started talking. At the time, it was just not even a working prototype. It was a hub. And as you turned the torque tube, it literally lit up a light. So what they had proven was that they could create the control system for a power meter. But they didn't quite have one yet. And as we began talking, we realized that I had some physiology background that could help them. And they had the engineering background that could help me. So I went back to the University of Colorado and asked if I could get back into the PhD program and create a thesis around understanding the demands of cycling. But my advisor at the time, Bill Burns, was like, look, you know, we don't have money for this. It's going to be hard for you to find, you know, grant dollars to study this. After the Cold War, studying human performance for the sake of studying human performance basically went away. And now, unless you could connect it to some sort of disease, you weren't going to get any kind of grant money to do good research. So I told Bill, hey, look, if I can raise the money for this, will you let me in the PhD program? And he basically said, yeah, you find the money and we'll do this. Um, I wrote hundreds of letters. Um, my friend Ingrid Alonji, who's a, one of my first friends that I met in Boulder, Colorado, helped me write hundreds of, of letters. And the idea was that maybe we could build our own team and that there would be budget in that team to do great sports science. Long story short, Celestial Seasonings um, came into the picture and they actually decided to underwrite my PhD program. At the same time, I became the director of the Celestial Women's Pro Cycling Team. So I got back into my PhD program in 1998, but I was doing double duty as uh, director for the Women's Pro Cycling Team and also getting into my doctoral studies. And I think in those days, you're still young, coaching, you know, you're pretty green, but with Celestial, it was sort of your first chance to really go from race to race, weekend to weekend, and just grit it out and learn things that you can only learn while you're on the road. And that sort of formed your work ethic in a way to be like, wow, this is what it takes to actually run a team. 
at that point. Yeah, like showing up to a race with only 50 water bottles for, you know, the HP Women's Classic and only 50 water bottles. So every night you're trying to find every single one of those bottles and you're bleaching them in a bathtub at, you know, midnight, getting ready for the next day. I think in some ways I totally did not know what the hell I was doing. It was fire by trial. It was trial by fire, whatever the expression is. Um, it was super hard, but it was also super fun. And, um, you know, the, the, the athletes, the relationships I built from uh, pushing myself to, to be part of a team, to have a team, not only did it set the foundation for the rest of my PhD work, but it set the foundation for really understanding how hard it is to work in pro cycling. And after you finished with Celestial Seasonings and you, you earned your PhD, your trajectory kept on going up and up and up. You got a call from a certain Floyd Landis. How did he end up finding you? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Like, I think that it seems like this linear thing where, yeah, you do one thing and then you do the next thing. But for me, the PhD program was super, super hard. And I got really lucky because not only did I get the support of Celestial Seasonings, but two years later, I also got the support of the Sarah Cycling Group. Um, effectively, Power Tap or E-Tune um, went bankrupt and the intellectual property was up for sale. So Saris, Chris Fortune, the owner of Saris, uh, came and visited me at the university and basically asked, started asking me about the future of power meters. You know, is this something worth investing in? And I really believed it was. So he ended up buying PowerTap and he kept me on. He kept me on to help them, you know, make sure that that product really worked. Um, continued to help support the rest of my PhD work. And by the time I was done with my PhD, I was so burnt out. I was so exhausted. I was so tired that I really didn't want to do anything. Um so I basically moved back in with my mom and I remember spending most of my mornings hitting golf balls from her front yard into the park across the street. And it was during this time that, uh, I get this call from Floyd Landis and the, essentially he had gotten connected to me through the Sarah cycling group because power tap was now sponsoring Floyd. Um, and you know, he said to me, hey, word on the street is you're not doing much. And I was kind of like, hey, word on the street is you can go F yourself. Um, I didn't actually say that. I more thought that. I wasn't the type to kind of swear back then. Um, but he asked me a question that kind of changed my life once again. There are all these moments. And that question was, hey, do you want to help me win a Tour de France? And I remember going down to San Diego to visit with Floyd. And he asked me this question. He said to me, hey, how do you think I'm going to do in this year's tour? And we were coming into 2005 and I said, you know, something to the effect of, well, like I think that if, if everything goes well, that you've got a great chance of being on the podium, you know, if not top five. And when I said this, I could just literally see the smoke coming out of his ears. He was so irate with me. And he gets up and he screams at me, if you don't fucking think that I can win the tour, then you need to get the hell out of here. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, this guy is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. But then he calms down and he relaxes. And then he says to me, he says, hey, look, here's the deal. If we don't train like we're going to win the tour, we're never going to learn how to win the tour. 
And then he goes into his bedroom and he pulls out this stack of papers, this thick stack of papers. And each sheet of paper is a piece of graph paper with a month's worth of training data on it, right? Everything kind of like just precisely written down and, and categorized. And I'm looking through this stack that he shows me. And I reach these, these years where I see two entries in every column. And I ask him, like, why are there two columns in every entry, in, in, in each column here? And he says to me, well, on the right is what I did, and on the left is what Lance did, right? He's been keeping a secret training diary on Lance Armstrong during the years that he rode for him. And he said to me, your first job is to take all this data and figure it out. How do we win the tour? So to him, it was just a riddle. It was a problem that needed to be solved. And you were the person to help him do that. Um, so was it, were, were you just chomping at the bit to do that because you're, 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 you love data, you're data driven? Or was it just the, at the time, the weird uh, relationship you had with Floyd? No, I was scared shitless. Like I found all of these pro tour riders to be totally intimidating. Right. I had grown up as a cycling fan. I, you know, kind of cut my teeth with junior racing and with collegiate racing. Um, you know, like I'd show up to parking lot crits and there would be an A through D category and all the points were summed up and you won as a team. Like I came from a different cycling culture. I didn't come from the Tour de France culture. And so I looked up to these guys. I had posters of them on my walls. Right. I didn't think that I was capable of being of any service to them, despite the academic knowledge that I had. Um, but what I learned, I learned two things. One, I was smarter than I thought I was. Like, school worked. You know, when, when they force you to study that much, thank you, Dr. Bill Burns, um, you actually start to retain things. And what you take to be common knowledge is not common knowledge. Um, Number two, I started realizing that Floyd and these other athletes were just human beings who happened to be extraordinarily talented, right? And when I would see them do ordinary things like vacuum or wash the dishes, I'd be like, holy shit, Floyd Landis is washing the dishes. Man, he's good at organizing the dish, the dish rack. Like, this is incredible. You know, and like I'd want to like... I'd want to like take a picture and send send notes to friends at home about this dishwashing or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't know what I was doing again. Like every time I, I, I stepped up, I was stepping up into uh, uncharted territory. So would you say that for those first few years, it was you were or just that short while is a little bit of imposter syndrome going oh, yeah. on? Yeah. I think I still have that today, right? Like people know me now for doing certain things in the sport and I'm just like, I don't know, man. After after you um, met with Floyd and started training him and then traveled with him and then went to the Tour de France and it was, was your first tour with him in 05 and then all the ones after that? Well, yeah, my first tour was in 05 with Floyd and pe people would ask me, you know, kind of in this very congratulatory way, like, you know, great job. How was the tour? What'd you think? Oh my gosh, this is so amazing. And it wasn't, it was total bullshit. Um, but that race, that experience for me was mired, um, in, in, in all that people thought was wrong with cycling, but couldn't say to themselves, right? I walked into a total shit show. I walked into the very 
kind of belly of the beast with respect to doping um, and coercion and fear and isolation and loneliness. Um, it was probably the darkest time of my life. And I think it was a really dark time for Floyd. Um, and in that isolation and loneliness, we had each other, right? Um, he made it really clear that he needed my help. He wanted my support. Um, he needed someone to drive the car behind him and, to, you know, help him with food and bring the bottles. And he needed the company. Um, he needed someone who had some intellectual capacity to, to, to talk about training programs and ideas with. Uh, but he was also really frank with me about the drugs that were being used and what was going on in that world and effectively gave me the choice to look the other way. Um, and so I did. And I, and I looked the other way because Floyd had become my friend and because I was too scared to speak out. I didn't understand, you know, maybe what I was getting myself into or what those consequences were. Um, I was super impressionable at that time as well. And I didn't want to disappoint anyone. So when you talk about the omerta and getting caught up in the omerta, for me today, I realize that the omerta is something that, oh my gosh, like if you don't have a good sense of who you are, if you don't have that confidence or that self-esteem, it's so easy to just get coerced and manipulated into that. And and I had, I was well aware of everything that had happened and I was well aware of the risk that Floyd was taking. But so long as I didn't have anything to do with it physically, like if I wasn't injecting him with a drug, then that was okay. That made it okay with me. But later I realized that I was really complicit to it all by withholding and the whole sport was withholding. And so you could say that I was just, you know, part of the whole entire problem. Um, and that in hindsight for me was really sad. It really sucked. And so when people would ask me about the tour and they would congratulate, talk about imposter syndrome, talk about feeling like a fraud. So I would tell them that the tour was 99-1, that it was 99% bullshit, 1% pure magic. Because despite this hell that I was going through, this, this both kind of personal and moral vexation about what was right and what was wrong, there was still this magic being able to see the Tour de France for the very first time, seeing the, the Peloton snake up these switchbacks in the Alps, right? Seeing these towns come out of nowhere to greet the tour riders. We went through this one town and every single person in that town came out in bathrobes. They were all dressed in freaking bathrobes. I'm like, holy cow. Like, I can't even wear the same t-shirt as my teammates. Like, this is incredible. And I knew that the sport was still worth being part of. I just had to figure out how. And that 1%, outweighs the 99 i mean you feel so strongly about it you have it tattooed on your arm and yeah. you're not the only one you've got other people <laughs> with the 99 one mantra going on that's that that's lives on forever yeah this is the 99 one turned into ixixi 991 taylor finney was the one who who came up with it that became kind of my mantra as i began to coach other riders and you know when he crashed um and broke his leg and didn't know if he was going to come back. Um, I didn't know what to say to him. So I just texted him, I-X-I-X-I. -I -I, 
And he texted me back that if he ever rode a bike again, that we would get that tatted to our skin. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of us have gotten this tattoo since then. And it represents this idea that it's not about, you know, the, the, the challenge or the difficulty or the struggle. It's about, it's about believing in the magic. It's also not about the magic. It's not about the reward. It's about the challenge itself. So it goes both ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's a reminder that, you know, there is a lot of suck and that you can overcome it. How did the experience with Floyd change your trajectory within the sport? Well, first, I just couldn't couldn't see myself living that kind of life. And uh, what I realized about the Omerta is that the Omerta works both ways, right? You can't tell anybody that they're cheating, but if you try to do something to stop someone from cheating, they can't tell anyone that you stopped them from cheating, right? Yeah. It's this like funny little ecosystem. And so I ended up talking to Jonathan Vodders about all the BS that I was experiencing and seeing. And he was the first person to say to me like, hey, Al, let's fix this. And I, in some ways, kind of owe my career to JV because JV was the first person to not say, hey, just keep your mouth shut. Right. He was the first one to say, yeah, let's figure this out. Let's fix this because it is crap. It is bullshit. And so the way we decided to fix it was one, he gave me a job and two, um, he sent me off to try to explore ways that we could create new anti-doping systems. We ended up winning a grant from the World Anti-Doping Agency um, and started uh, working with uh, UCLA Anti-Doping Laboratory, Don Catlin and his son on what now is the biological passport. So the idea was that, hey, let's take a new generation of American cyclists. This was the TIA craft cycling team with riders like Ian McGregor, Brad Huff, Mike Friedman. Um, and we would put them through a whole medley of monthly tests looking at biological markers that might be indicative of drug use, right? And it's a program that now is kind of the first standard of the anti-doping movement or the clean sport movement. And what year was this that you started really working together with JV? This was the fall of 2005, right? Um, and so he saved me. He, he kind of pulled me out of a real tough situation. But I was still friends with Floyd, and I still wanted the best for him. And I still believed that it could all be done clean. I, I think that that's the irony of the situation, is that when I was exposed to performance-enhancing drug use in the very, very early part of my career, what I realized was not, wow, this stuff makes you fly. What I realized was, wow, this stuff can really hurt you, if not potentially kill you, right? I also realized that it was built on a foundation of power and coercion, and that many of these young athletes were being manipulated to do something that they were that they just didn't want to do and that these young athletes didn't have a say about how they could best take care of their bodies. And if they did have a say, it might be naive to say, but I developed a belief system that they could do better. And ultimately, I think if you're going to perform at any level, you have to have a belief system, even if it's just on faith. So after working with young riders in a clean program, you work with Lance and even George Bush, the president of the United States. How did that come to happen? 
Well, yeah, you know, the TIA craft team that morphed into the Garmin program, we started bringing other uh, pros who had Grand Tour experience. And the idea was that we would build a World Tour team on a clean platform. Um, and I think it started to work. Uh, we had some, some, some great success and we became kind of America's team, if you will. Um, at the same time, I was still heavily involved with the Sarah Cycling Group and PowerTap. And G-Dub uh, wanted to get a better understanding of how much work he was doing. He was a big cyclist. And he ended up buying a um, PowerTap and wanted to get connected with someone at the company who could help him understand it. Essentially, it was, it was through his body man, um, you know, basically his personal assistant who takes care of everything. Um, and so I worked with his body man for, for quite some time before, you know, they were just like, hey, do you just, just want to come out and ride with the president? So you get a call from the White House essentially saying, we need you to come see the president. No, you get an email <laughs> and then you get a bunch of, you know, spreadsheets and we developed a relationship over a little bit of time. And then, yeah, next things, next, whatever. It's, it's actually kind of uh, a funny, funny scenario, right? But, but this was also built around the fact that I was working for a team that was seen as America's team at the at the time, right? This was 2008 that Garmin came into the fold. And at that year's tour, Christian Vandeveld came in fourth. And that was a huge, huge performance for the squad. That was like winning the Tour de France. How enthusiastic of a writer was George W? Um, was he, did, were you in that same like kind of starstruck vibe the way you were in the early days of the world tour guys well you know how you have a lot of friends who you love hanging out with and you know they're kind of your best mates but you wouldn't ask them to like literally like water your plants if you were <laughs> you know away for vacation that was kind of maybe g-dub um he was a f just hilarious and fun guy to hang out with i remember I was waiting for him for a bike ride and he, it was Sunday morning and he was coming back from church and he comes whizzing past me and he's just like, it's just going to be a second, you know, like I'll be right back. And he literally runs up these set of stairs. And the next thing I know, he's running back down and he's in full kit. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And, uh, this, this, uh, this agent next to me says to me, kind of whispers to me, you know, the president had his full kit on under his suit, you know, and I mean, like, that's how much he was into cycling. That's how much he loved cycling, that he would wear his kit under his suit, go to church so that he could get undressed as quickly as possible and that we could be back out on the bike. Did that freak you out or impress you or both? Well, what was also funny was that like he had the rest of his gear in like some torn paper Whole Foods bag or something, you know, <laughs> and I'm just like, again, you know, we're all people. Right. Right. And sometimes we don't have a cool rain bag. We've got a paper bag with our cycling shoes and helmet. And so after that experience, you're you're at this point very well known within the cycling community. Um, let's talk about the steps leading up to Lance and how that transition came. I mean, you, you had you, you had a uh, falling out with JV at a certain point, and that led to Radio Shack and Lance Armstrong. Yeah, I had a falling out with JV, unfortunately, and a lot of it had to do just with money and finances and 
my sense that I wanted more. You know, I, you could say that I was a greedy asshole at that point. Um, you could also say that the team, you know, wasn't wanting to take care of me. Um, but I think that's the way it is in cycling, you know, like the riders get cared for the staff members generally not. And it, it, it's not a world that you stay in for a very long time because there's a huge line of people waiting to take that job for less money. Right. Um, right or wrong. I think that I felt like I deserved more and, you know, started to, to, to shop around and, got some some interest from Lance um I think you know going back a little bit that interest maybe really started in the 2009 tour um at this point you know we had a phenomenal team at the tour guys like Ryder Hedgedal Brad Wiggins Christian Vandeveld and they were all making the the front group in the mountains which is a pretty phenomenal thing to see those Garmin jerseys still with the lead pack and Wiggins would do this thing when he came over the top of a climb. He would whistle out, you know, here we go. And it would annoy the crap out of, you know, mostly Lance. And I remember one day at the tour, Levi Leipheimer came up to the team bus and he was like, look out, you got to tell Bradley to stop this here we go bullshit. Like it's driving everyone insane. And I literally go back in the bus and I'm like, Brad, it's working. Keep it up. Um, it, it was, it was, it was funny, but Levi Leipheimer would tell me later that one day they were coming over the top of a climb and they hear Bradley whistle out, here we go. And Lance turns to Levi and says, how the hell are these guys still with us? And Levi turns to Lance and says, Dr. Lim. Um, and so, you know, maybe at that point I was becoming a bit of a, figure mysterious or not I mean I was weird like I was this sports scientist who was kind of awkward and fumbling and trying new things and you know going from hotel to hotel with a rice cooker and constantly experimenting and uh, I knew in part that that there was a lot of show in that like other teams would be like I wonder what he's up to and that maybe would cause some nocebo effect but it was also kind of fun to, to screw with people um but I think that ultimately precipitated this conversation with Lance and about his comeback and about why he was, you know, kind of in pursuit of this comeback, uh, knowing that I was part of a team that uh, was was clean, that I was part of a program that was now in full, you know, kind of usage of the biological passport. And so in some ways, I could have just been hired by Lance to be a beard, right? That was very kind of cognizant of that. Um, but it was this question that, that I asked Lance that maybe made me change my mind or made me fool myself into changing my mind. And the question I asked Lance was, why do you want to do this? Right. It was just the simple why. And his answer surprised me. What he said to me was, I need something to tell my kids. And at that moment, once again, I realized that he was just another guy, right? Whether it's the president, whether it's, uh, you know, a guy capable of winning the Tour de France, they're just human beings, right? And I had this epiphany or maybe this false story in my head that if I could help Lance ride his last Tour de France clean, 
I could actually help the whole entire Peloton ride clean because he was the linchpin. He was the influencer. If everyone is willing to blame doping on Lance Armstrong, then maybe everyone could blame clean sport on Lance Armstrong too. That's a deep freaking irony. But I understood on the inside that that was the only way it was going to work. The only way it was going to work was if the best athletes in the world basically said, enough is enough. We all want a playing level field. Let's all put down our needles. So you got to see multiple sides of Lance Armstrong. Maybe you were one of the only people that saw that. You got to see his caring side as well. How did that affect you? It was a freaking trip, man. Because you want to hate the guy. Like, you want to hate the guy. You want to hate the winner. You want to, like, as much as, like, I am all about my U.S. passport, you know, America, oh, you, talk, you think about some of our policy, holy shit, not to get political, but Lance was kind of a political figure to me, right? More than he was an athlete. And politically speaking, you just wanted to hate everything about this guy. And I did. But when I began working with him, what I realized from my experience was that he was probably the most caring individual that I had ever worked with. Um, I remember we went to Hawaii for a training camp and I was expecting to be just bunked up in some little shack. And he had literally rented me my own house and said to me, look, we're going to be here for a long time. This is your home. Do whatever you want with it. Fly over, invite over anyone you want to. Like you got to take care of yourself. And he was never opposed to um, trying new things listening to ideas, experimenting, and taking super, super good care of me. Um, he was cognizant that if he wanted me to be my best, that he had to help me do everything I could to, to be that person as well. And that was truly inspiring for me. Uh, after the Lance sort of experience, you decided to go back to your roots in a way, sort of training your friends, the, the sort of next generation, just for the pure love and the camaraderie and knowledge. People such as Taylor Finney, Tim Johnson, TJ Van Garderen. Um, ex explain sort of your reasoning to, to go into that and do it basically for free. Well, I didn't have a choice. In 2010, when I started working for Lance, the federal investigation started. Floyd blew the whistle. So now we're full circle. It's crazy, right, to be connected to these two athletes, um, but to also have been connected to, you know, countless other athletes um, who don't have the, the, the namesake that became part of my family. And so in 2010, when the federal investigation started, literally, I came home from the Tour de France and waiting for me in Boulder, Colorado, were a cadre of federal investigators, Jeff Nowitzki, the whole entire gang. And at that point, when I got subpoenaed uh, into that federal investigation, the gig was up. The team benched me. Um, nobody in pro cycling wanted to work with me. Um, I couldn't find a job. My professors at the University of Colorado Boulder were fuming at me, right? Everybody was calling me out as a liar and as an imposter. And man, talk about doors slamming in your face hard. My nose was bloody. Um, but it was during this time that I found a lot of solace with a friend of mine, Ian McGregor. He was a pro, a pro with the Slipstream program. And he had 
been diagnosed the year before with LA endofibrosis. So his career was basically over. And when I was working for Lance, I was helping to support Ian by having him work as my kind of sports science assistant, doing a lot of special projects. One of those projects was helping me to make drink mix. Um, Athletes had always complained that, you know, they would get gut rot or flavor fatigue from bad drink mix. We also knew that there probably wasn't enough salt in these drink mixes. So we started making, you know, the drink mix ourselves, you know, in a little blender, then using the paint shaker at the local hardware store. And Ian was kind of integral to doing this. And so when I effectively got benched and he was injured and going to school, we would basically hang out together you know, sitting on the couch, dreaming about what we could potentially do with our lives, trying to uh, rediscover, reinvent our own identity. At the same time, athletes who I'd formerly worked with were calling me up and saying, hey, look, Al, we know you're in a real shit show right now, but could you still make us that drink mix that you used to make for us? And initially, I was kind of like, you know what? No way. Like, you can go fuck yourself. Like, why would I make you drink mix? But then I would feel guilty and I had a ton of time on my hands. And so Ian and I started making drink mix. And it was Ian who was like, Al, this stuff has some wicked margin. Like we could actually start selling this stuff. And so that's effectively what we did, not because we wanted to start a business, but because we had no choice in our lives at the time, but to try to take care of ourselves. And starting a business was the only way. When no one else will hire you, then you might as well try to hire yourself, right? And when that started occurring and I realized that I could be in financial command of my own life and that I didn't have to be dependent on pro cycling to do that, I had such a sense of freedom, right? For the first time in my life, I wasn't censored. I had my own voice. And... As part of maintaining that voice and my my love of cycling, I knew that I had to have an unconditional relationship with cycling. I knew that my own greed had gotten me into trouble and was kind of the, the reason for the bullshit that I was in. And so I made this decision in my head that if I ever worked in pro cycling again or if I ever coached an athlete, I would just do it for free. And on your own terms. On my own terms, but that I would no longer make cycling about money. I would no longer take money to coach an athlete. But that if an athlete asked me for help and I was in a position where I could help them, I would. And, And this harkens back to this idea called the prima facie. The prima facie in law is this idea that some things are self evident. But philosophically, the prima facie also is this idea that if you have the capacity to help someone, you have a moral obligation to do so. And in helping my friends, in running little training camps while I was building Scratch with Ian, that brought me a lot of joy. And it was probably some of the the, the kind of the best moments in cycling that I experienced. You know, we ran a training camp for Christian Vandeveld and David Zabriskie out of Boulder, Colorado for the Tour de France. That was unprecedented to have guys fly back to America to train for the tour and then fly back. And then that led into an Olympic training camp for Taylor Finney. And all of a sudden, out of the woodwork, athletes started showing up like Tim Johnson, Evelyn Stevens, Peter Stetna, Alex Howes, Craig Lewis. Um, and it was the most fun because all of a sudden we tore down the borders between teams, right? We tore down the bo- the borders regarding sponsorship 
if you were someone who just needed help and needed a follow car for the day, show up at Scratch Labs at 9 a.m. and we'll be on the road at 10. So in a way, coming full circle, this next and sort of last phase takes you back to your roots, making it all about freedom for you, for the sport, for the new athletes. Yeah, which also gets me in trouble, right? Because I tend to, I tend to mouth off more than I normally used to. Um, I have maybe uh, this kind of fierce sense of independence now that, that I'm super sensitive to. And so sometimes, you know, playing by the rules is difficult for me. Um, but, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat back in the swing of things. Ultimately, my first priority is, is my business. But this last year, I began coaching TJ Mangardarin, Taylor Finney um, on a more official capacity. And um, it's brought me back into the sport at a, at a deeper level, especially through TJ. And so, yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, we decided to sponsor the EF pro cycling team to not piss people off and, uh, you know, be able to kind of share and tell the story. Alan Lim, thank you so much for sharing your story. We all appreciate it. What's sort of the one thing people can take away from, uh, your lessons, the things you've learned? I think two things. The first thing is that anything is possible, right? The second, and this is why we named the company Scratch Labs, is that no matter where you find yourself in life, it's never too late to start from scratch. That this idea of the American dream, I think, is real. I think that we have the ability to reinvent ourselves, to face really, you know, dark challenges and come out the other side, um, come out better. For me, this is ultimately why I agreed to to do this show um, and to you know, bring beyond limits to to the cycling community. Um, It's because I'm now at a point in my life where I feel like I need to share. Um, I've helped so many professional athletes become better, but for me, it's not because they were pro athletes or because they were talented. It was because I got to know them as human beings. And as I now interact with many more people through my company and just the life that I now have, I realize that, you know, what we learn from these athletes could benefit all of us, right? Um, this idea of, of becoming better is something that still pulls me. And better is not perfection. Better is about progress, right? So for me, talking about our own limitations, talking about the fears, the challenges, whatever they may be, it's not just about sports science. It's also about life. And um, if we can all uh, do a little, little better, be a little better, let this make us better, then I think that um, I can go to bed feeling pretty good at night. Thank you so much, Ellen. We look forward to hearing more of you in the future. For more Beyond Limits content, visit velonews.com backslash beyondlimits. There, you'll find editorials, videos, and more podcasts as we explore how to grow beyond our own limits.